0: That's investher, H E R, com promo code 100 best ever to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Low leverage and a high cash flow. That means that. Even if the market temporary fluctuates, the lenders are okay because our debt-covered service ratio is fine. And that's where you really run into challenges today.
0: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Patrick Grimes. Patrick is joining us from Los Angeles, California. He is the CEO of Invest on Main Street. They find investment opportunities and alternative assets that have strong performance and allow investors to passively invest in commercial real estate syndications. Patrick's portfolio consists of almost 5,000 multifamily units, totaling $647 million in 26 communities in seven states, as well as 138 natural gas and oil wells. Patrick, thank you for joining us, and how are you today?
1: Glad to be here, Ash. When I first started in this journey, I had been tuning into this
2: podcast fairly frequently, so glad to be on the other side of it. It's our pleasure to have you. Patrick, before we get started, can you give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on (laughs) now?
1: Sure. So my name is Patrick Grimes, founder of Best on Main Street, We are focused on bringing alternative investments. And me coming from a high-tech background, I was very heavily weighted into high-tech stocks, realized that I needed to be diversified, didn't know how to do it. So we're offering those passive investments and assets that are non-correlated by Wall Street.
2: So that's why we're investing on Main Street. And Patrick, 5,000 multifamily units. Tell us how that evolution happened. How'd you get started? So we're almost to (laughs) 5,000. Yeah, it was a long journey. I started out
1: back in 2007 and eight as a high tech professional. I got some advice to invest as much as I can as soon as I can into real estate. I tried it out in a pre development, which was supposed to double and triple my money every year or two. Unfortunately, I personally guaranteed all that. Nine and 10 happened and it raked me over the coals pretty bad. So it was a rough start. Learned a lot about. Speculating versus investing, buying for cash flow, and eventually circled back after advancing my high-tech career further into single family, and then recession-resilient, lower-risk investment, and then traded up
2: to larger multifamily. All right. A lot of that sounds generic. It sounds like it could be on a brochure. Give us the dirty. So how bad was it in 2009, 2008? You personally guaranteed a lot of these loans did that result in bankruptcy ultimately?
1: Well, I was in one pre-development back then. But no, I was determined not to go bankrupt. And I probably should have. And a lot of people in my position did go bankrupt. I was fairly confident that I could make my way through it. I paid for longer than I should. In fact, when I hired the attorney to help me out, he said, stop paying. And then you'll finally get a hold of him. My note had been sold about three times. Couldn't really find who the people were. Finally got them on the phone or they reached out once I stopped paying. And I asked them, so am I going bankrupt or are we going to figure something out? (laughs) And ultimately what happened is it was all recourse in a recourse state. They said they were not going to come after me. I went through a foreclosure. They then forgiven what they called a forgiven debt. And they wrote it off on their taxes, which means the IRS came around and said, hey, Patrick, you're personally responsible now to pay for the taxes of the debt that they forgave as if it was income for you personally, ordinary income. So I was paying on taxes, foreclosure took a hit. At that point, I was pretty much wrecked, very embarrassed and got back into my high-tech career. Decided to make that my next thing, did a master's in engineering and business. I was very successful at what I did, did a lot of great projects. It was very difficult to climb that high-tech ladder as everybody, probably most of your listeners know. And I found myself stocking away into traditional investments, IRA, 401ks, but still had that whisper in my ear, the wealthy invest in real estate for a reason. You just did it too risky, too fast, inexperienced and at the wrong time. So that's when I reset, found other ways to get back into real estate and decided to be the portis
2: and not the hare at that point. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. How many years was it that you went back into tech? Let me dig through the cobwebs.
1: So I graduated college in 2006, mechanical engineer. Then I, through 9, 10, 11, 12, it wasn't until, let's say, 2013 that I finished my master's in engineering and MBA. Then I switched companies to make it big in a small automation company. And that's when I really started hunkering into the single family one.
2: So you were out of real estate for how many years then? I pretty much got clear
1: financially by 2010 and 11. I think I was clear financially. And then I started my master's degrees. And then that puts me maybe three or four years before I started actively pursuing other options in real estate.
2: Yeah. And again, thank you for sharing that. It's amazing You knew that you had to get back in real estate, but you did what you had to do for the time being. You got further educated and started going up that corporate ladder. And then when the time was appropriate, you got back into real estate. So amazing story. And then give us the run. So you started investing in single family homes, something a little bit safer. And how did that epic rise come about?
1: Well, I tend to be a bit of an analyst coming from the machine design space. And I did a lot of research throughout the investing world. And I wasn't 100% all in on real estate when I came back around, but I arrived back at it for similar reasons. But I found that I was paying out of pocket because I wasn't buying things for cash flow. I was trying to get outsized returns quickly by trying to create something. And when the music stopped, I lost it all. And I was personally guaranteed. I found that there were ways to buy in recession-resilient markets, like in Texas. And I found Houston, actually, where the real estate market lifted. And then during the downturn, it actually almost leveled off before it started going up again. If anybody's interested, I can send them the graphs that I looked at all those years ago, and the graphs still say the same things. They're recession-resilient markets for all the things that you probably are expecting. of diversified employment. Industries have some insulation for market volatility, often essential needs, and they're landlord friendly. It's better, you can get more stable rent there because you can get people out, and they're legislative friendly to new businesses. So the business keep moving there, people keep moving there, even in downturns, just like we saw during COVID. There are areas that continue to outperform. So I found those areas, and then it was about the asset what am I going to buy? And I read The Hold Investor. I have it over there. It's a yellow book on the wall there about how I could continue my tech career until I die, basically. Or I could continue my tech career until I can get 40 single family homes. And so I fell into that trap. And it was successful though, because I was buying these properties in Houston while in the Bay Area in Southern California. And I was essentially burning the candle at both ends on the engineering career doing amazing projects, Lockheed, Tesla, J&J, Abbott, and working on EV vehicles, Rockets, all kinds of cool stuff. And I'm a huge geek, so I love it. Don't get me wrong. I actually thought I was going to do it forever while trying to moonlight by underwriting properties, meeting with wholesalers, contractors, getting them under contract, getting loans, getting contractors, getting them renovated, getting them refinanced, and getting them filled in the property management. I was moonlighting it and it was painful. If you want to hear the dirty skinny, the American dream would have us working at these high-tech careers or as a lawyer or a doctor and idolizing these people that work for Apple or become a resident or a doctor at some famous hospital. But that just leads to working forever. leads to the 24-7 slog that I was in, it doesn't leave any time to, to pay attention to your investments. So we just kind of push them off to 401ks and IRAs like I did, or you graduate. Like I did with the TV set, and that was glamorizing these house flippers. (laughs) You know, (laughs) late night TV, you can become a landlord and that's the American dream. Well, I'll tell you what, I didn't have any time left for family, friends, and hobbies when I was doing what I was good at during the day and I was moonlighting real estate. So my soon-to-be wife that I met, and this was when I was 35 and I had not gotten married yet, I knew it was time. And I found a girl that was 26 years old and amazing. (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm going to take a pause. And she was actually there for my last single family closing. And then I said, look, I got to take a break and I want to marry you. Then when we come back to it, we're going to do something else. And that's when I learned that I couldn't do it all myself. I had to trade up. And from then on, the shift was in private equity, syndications and partnering and multifamily.
2: Passively or actively or both.
1: Both. In fact, I have some articles in Forbes that where I write on asset protection, which talks about the outsized risk of the single family dream and the passive position in a limited partnerships and securities offering, and on the, the better position that puts you in. I have articles on that accelerated growth in the multifamily space. So I was all in on getting the returns on the passive side. But the engineer in me wouldn't let me just not understand the inner workings of everything. So I've always been that. Gary George is my favorite book growing up. So it wasn't long, it was two and a half years actually, from when I stopped doing single family, that I actually was an active
2: partner in my first multifamily deal. What the hell did you do for two and a half years? Overanalyze. Okay, and that was my next question. In my experience, engineers make some of the best syndicators because of all the systems that they implement. And I think the flip side of that is at times they will overanalyze deals as well. So, what's the solution to having people like you that are very technically savvy and get them to at some point draw a line in the sand and say, okay, this is a good deal, move forward stop analyzing and talking yourself out of this deal. What's the solution to that?
1: Well, I had it in both ways. I actually did a podcast on the do zone where the guy just poked at me for being an analysis paralysis guy for a while. But I had the double whammy where I had lost it all. I had gone through this incredibly painful financially and emotionally experience. And it was scary. All right. So i had already lost it all one time in addition to being an analyst and an engineer. And I had done most of everything on my own. I had tried to be the expert in engineering. And I thought, well, if I'm so good at that, it's like many of my investors are really good at being an attorney or a doctor or whatever, entrepreneur. Well, that means they can obviously figure out real estate too, right? Well, it turns out that I was so focused on trying to do it all myself that I lost myself. So the journey for me over that two and a half years was unpacking the onion. It was, how do I trust in others? to partner with, whether it's a limited partner or an active partner. In order to scale this, I need to find somebody in new asset classes, alternative investments that have been doing it for decades successfully, have been through the downturn, understand the conversations and the questions I'm asking because they have felt that defeat and come out of it and can build a portfolio to last. I need to find those kind of people actively or passively. And that took a long time. We trapped, my wife and I actually traveled a lot together because I was already traveling for high tech and I have companion pass. If you catch a ride every now and then, She's a rock star in her own right, not to underplay her. She's production manager for feature length films. So she's a bit of a systems person herself. But ultimately it took me to get past just the trust factor and then who is the right who that has the right values. And then what are we going to do? What are the assets? There was probably a dozen different potential partners, sponsors that we had literally met physically before we found the right one. I don't expect everybody to go down this path, but for me, that was the exploration that I was on. And then when we started investing, it was more of a natural. We understood the mindset. I learned about underwriting. I understood the business model, and it became much more of a, let's just do more and more together. I had brought a number of investments to them over the years saying, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this one? Then I started, when I learned about being active, I started meeting brokers and getting my own deals, underwriting, getting feedback and saying, what do you think about this deal? What do you think about this deal? And I had been doing this with half a dozen different large syndicators, ones that have been doing it for decades. I was determined to trade up. And ultimately, one of the ones said, let's work on one together. And that's how the active journey
2: started. Out of the almost 5,000 units that you have, are those ones that you are actively managing or are you partners in that or do you solely control those?
1: Those are all in the general partner side and I'm a co-general partner in all of them. What I learned over the years is one piece of the puzzle is the analyst. One piece of the puzzle is the underwriter, the projections of the pro forma. The other piece of the puzzle is vertically integrated management that can control all the way to the tenants. And somebody that takes, like me, a designer that walks in a building, says they have a new gizmo or gadget, creates this automated machine, and does the analysis, financial modeling, 3D modeling to actually produce something. That is different than the person that takes that thing on the manufacturing floor and gets it from 80 to 85 to 90 to 95 to 99.999% efficient. And I learned that I needed those guys in the long term that were very passionate about that vertically integrated property management, building out teams. I needed those partners that were in the various markets. I didn't want to be all in one place anymore, that are in the various markets, had decades of experience, success to partner with. And that's when I learned to the partner with the right who, that's when
2: I learned how to be successful. Are you a co-GP with multiple different operators? or is it mostly concentrated in one or a few? Half dozen. Okay. And what is your primary role
1: as a co-GP? I've done a little bit of all the roles, deal finding and underwriting. Asset management is perhaps not my strong suit, but I play a role in making sure that the properties are meeting the projections and performance. I tend to work with others that are very passionate on the property management side. I'm a key principal, have my fanny card. So- I can help secure the loans. We've put up earnest money and we're a co-investor in all the deals. Okay. And we capital
2: raise. So you're not typecasted into any one role or with any one group. You go where the opportunities are.
1: Yeah, and I think that comes out in this next example. On the multifamily side, there's a lot of different flavors. Really great deals come in different shapes and sizes with different partners. On the diversified energy side, obviously I haven't been drilling oil and gas well. For my whole life. My great-grandfather did, and it's in the family, but I haven't. So partnering with operators that are heavy in that space that have a track record. And then in the recessionary acquisitions fund that we're launching now, we're finding incredible assets that are way undervalued, like yields we saw in 2009 and 10 that I wasn't able to swoop up. And So there's a number of partners on that side in different markets that are able to help Chase those down a little bit like whack a mole when you find them, they disappear to help chase those assets that are steeply discounted, which we're finding. So, each of these, to your point, has a little bit different system, a little bit different process.
0: We'll get back to the show. The first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? SyndicationAttorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with securities laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in securities offerings created, SyndicationAttorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. SyndicationAttorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit SyndicationAttorneys.com today to get started. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. Bam Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a 3 to 5 year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with Bam Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital thebamcompanies.com.
2: Patrick, we've had a great run of many years. Arrow went up and to the right, and that's not the case today. Can you give us an example of some lessons learned on deals that you're involved in that maybe paused distributions or didn't meet the pro forma expectations and really the lessons learned from that?
1: Right. For example, having lost everything in real estate once, I was very cautious going into debt products. So I'm happy to say that all of our deals, the 26 acquired assets on the real estate side have all had either long-term fixed interest or interest with rate caps. They were all stress tested to be able to ride out the downturn, meaning that we had break-even occupancies well below where we saw them fall in past recession. And we keep six to eight months in reserves on the sideline so that if some natural disaster were to happen, we could ride it out. Along with insurance. Now, with all that said, some of those things have happened. After COVID, we had delinquencies rise. Places like Atlanta and Houston. All of a sudden, when people stop getting free rent, they decide not to pay, and that happened on a mass scale to the point where we used to be able to get people out in a month if they didn't pay. It's three and four, and in one case, almost six, where we're struggling to get somebody out. So that slows us down. We are cash flowing on the asset, or We are reducing distributions on many of the assets because of the slowdown, but just getting people out during COVID has caused some slowdown. We have reached our rate cap on all our assets, which is great, meaning that we weren't fixed interest. We're now not exposed to any further increases in interest rates, which is part of the underwriting. But also we saw insurance rates go up. Some carriers are leaving areas altogether, so it's a little bit of a dance we're playing where sometimes we'll get a 10% insurance increase of 20 or 30 in some areas, and then we're out shopping. So the compounding effect of these things means that even though we bought for very strong cash flow and and we conservatively projected, and we're still realizing dramatic rent growth in the markets that we're in, because we bought in markets with significant influx of people and rent growth, we're a little bit flatlined at the bottom level for now. Because of the delinquencies and the insurance going up, as well as much of the rent growth that we created through the value add was consumed by our interest rates rising to hit our cap. At this point, I'm happy to say we're on our way out of that, but it did probably set us back about six months, maybe a year in a property or two in our performance. It did set us back on the timing because we just can't get people out to renovate. And we're working on that now. So we're doing cash for keys in some cases. And as that all comes to fruition, we're able to continue to renovate. The fundamentals of the deals that were bought at steep discounts, very much so under market rents with easy superficial value outlifts lifts that we do
2: through renovations, the fundamentals of the deals are still strong. Having the luxury of hindsight, what should you have done differently?
1: Well, in every single deck I've ever done, Instead of trying to project 20 plus IRRs, we've said this is a 15 to 16 IRR. This is a 17 IRR. And we've added all these protections in there. We're going to have a line in every single investor deck that said this was underwritten or the forecast of this investment with an eye towards what happened in 2009 and 10 and not 2015 through 2020. And that line has been in there for many, many years. Nobody really paid attention to it. We kept emphasizing it in every single webinar. Nobody really cared so much about it. They were actually more like, why are you raising this extra million and a half dollars in six to eight months in reserves? That's a lot of money. What are you doing with that? It's just sitting in the account. We even took flack on, well, what are you going to do with it? It's going to get hit by inflation. Well, it's just sitting in the account. So we did as much as we could through those times to prepare ourselves for these times. The more investor education that you can give towards every market is cyclic, the better. For example, on my passive investor guide, it's a free download on my website. Right up in the very beginning, it talks about the diversification of the middle class, the high-income earners, and the ultra-wealthy. The middle class is about an 8% allocation outside of traditional investments. That's everything that's alternative. The middle class is relying on Ninety-two percent of all of their investments, to what their employers put things, put it in the 401k, or maybe they're in the stock market day trading, or maybe they've graduated a financial planner. All of that, eighty-two percent, is all in the cyclic, tax, inflation hedge space. But the high income earners are at twenty-five, and the ultra wealthy are at fifty, and alternative investments—that's private equity, business equity, and real estate. So I like to educate people all along. My story. Throughout this huge rapid growth that we've seen, to your question, has been, I've lost it all in real estate once. You shouldn't have more than half your wealth in real estate, and you shouldn't put more than 5% of your wealth into any particular deal, and you should consider diversifying like the wealthy into non-correlated investments. And that's why we're offering what I believe to be the highest risk-adjusted return in multifamily, the way that we structure it with the foundations that we structure it with underwriting a debt, as well as diversified energy, both essential needs, as well as recessionary acquisition. Because while you see people's portfolio going down right now and a reset happening in commercial real estate, there's opportunities to take advantage of the downside. There are people that have cash heavy that are out there looking for those deals and buying them. So the education I would give is don't fear the market cycles. They happen. That's part of capitalism. Always going to be going like this, and everybody could expect that. But learn how to ride the wave up and learn how to invest on the downturn so that you can at least get exposure to the upside on the downside. Don't fear it, but learn how to invest on the downturn and swoop up those discounted deals. That's the education I think everybody should hear and instead of sitting in fear on the sidelines. because Unfortunately, they're going to be like me. The fence be like, how did those guys do so well in the downturn? Well, I was
2: sitting scared. So, if I'm hearing this correctly, the answer to my question, what would you have done differently having the luxury of hindsight, is you would have taken the time to educate your investors on market cycles, how to prosper in down cycles. Right. How to
1: diversify in the upswing, and then how to position yourself to win
2: from a downturn. So you've hit your rate caps. When do those expire? And you've got over half a billion dollars of AUM. And we've seen the articles on what rate caps are costing going forward. What's the plan for that?
1: There's a lot of debate. In fact, I was just at a mastermind over the weekend. We were all discussing rate caps. And two-thirds of the rate cap, to be clear, is just volatility risk. It's uncertainty. So the rate caps are hyperinflated right now because of uncertainty. People are unsure as to what's going to happen. Now that the debt ceiling, which I'm not sure when this will air, but we just learned the debt ceiling was opened up, that relieves some of that. It's kind of a little bit of a pressure valve. And right now there's going to be treasuries issuance, which allows the government to start spinning again. The probability of another rate increase this month is about 20%. You know, that's a really good sign. And that's what the market's reflecting. It may happen in July,
2: but the Fed is certainly starting to taper their rhetoric. We had a crazy jobs report that sent the market soaring, and that's not what the Fed wanted. So that's just on the surface. However, if you look at the net
1: jobs, it's not that good. The different indicators, in fact, if you look at the likelihood of a rate cap, it's only 20%. And that's because that created a lot of jobs, but the net job loss has not been high. And that was a relief to the Fed. So there are lots of ways to look at these numbers. And there are ways that are perpetuated in the news. But right now, if that was the case, then why wouldn't the probability of an interest rate increase be 100% for July? Simply is it? Because the Fed is looking at more than just one index, which might skew it. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen or it will happen. I was just going to share a little bit Of the banter that we have between the syndication community. Most of pretty much everything that we closed on prior to last year was fixed, Fannie and Freddie. And it wasn't until last year that we found a lot of challenges with Fannie and Freddie in both the loan to value and the interest rates. And we found that doing a three year plus one plus one was more advantageous for our investors. And even the cost to pay for the rate caps, and the cost to increase the rate caps down the road is more advantageous than what it was costing to get the Fannie and Freddie. So for the most part, we do have another two years before we're up for a renewal. And within those loan terms, it was a three plus one plus one across the board. Now, the strategy to be well-capitalized. And well-capitalized, that means we have the money available to purchase an extension. On the interest rate cap. Now, those interest rate caps that we purchased have actually gone down from the time that we purchased them. For example, we purchased one rate cap that would normally go for 40,000 in steady state interest rates. In 2021, it was closer to 400,000 and we actually closed on it at 1.2 million. Well, now that same interest rate cap is trending somewhere around 700, 800,000. So we had planned with far more liquidity required in the bank than what we see today. And right now we see the uncertainty, actually rate caps coming down because there's a lot less uncertainty now with what the rates are going to do. I'm not saying it's just in the price of the rate caps. We feel very well capitalized to be able to purchase those.
2: Patrick, would you agree that one of the best things that you did was raise excess capital as you were raising for each of these deals? It's the safety margin
1: way of thinking from an engineer's perspective, but it's not just that. It's first low leverage is buying for cash flow. If we had 90% leverage on all these properties and we had six to eight month worth of reserves, we would still be tanked. We'd be all over right now. Why? By sticking with low leverage and a high cash flow, that means that even if the market temporary fluctuates, the lenders are okay because our debt covered service ratio is fine. And that's where you really run into challenges today.
2: Help me understand that. So if you had 90% LTV, why Mm -hmm. would that be detrimental? Would they call your loan?
1: No, they'll recap it. They'll come back and say, we're going to reassess your loan because it's a technical default. A technical default doesn't mean you were a bad actor. It just means you don't have the debt coverage service ratio. In other words, the current valuation of your property based on your current occupancies and the trending rates has now meant that it's too risky for them to carry forward, meaning they may say either you need to move on and refinance this or you need to come up and pay down your loan. And that's what's happening a lot with capital calls in order to create that debt coverage service ratio.
2: Interesting. uh, I didn't know that was a thing. I invest in non-residential commercial. So in Mm -hmm. our world, that doesn't happen. That's crazy to me that they modify loans as you go, but I, I understand it's a technicality. Interesting. Patrick, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing
1: ever is first who, then what. Find a partner that has been through a downturn, that has seen challenges and struggles and came out of it and learned from it. It is so frequent and it was the most challenging thing was to find partners that I could ask questions to that actually understood what I was asking. And I said, What are you doing to fortify this investment to ride out the next downturn? Or in this case, it's what are you doing right now different than you did before to take advantage of the market reset? How are you capitalizing on deals that are going to fall out from this? And how do I win from the downturn? Have you done this before? And first, who, then what? There's a lot of flashy marketing out there. A lot of people walking on the scene, doing a lot of crazy deals. We lose to these individuals because they're paying top dollar higher pricing. And when we talk to them, they don't have an appreciation for essentially the same fortification that we do and that we place into our investment.
2: Patrick, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, Patrick, what's the best ever book you recently read?
1: Fred Taylor, a CEO must do these three things. He's a solid buddy of mine, and that book you need to read at least three times leading an organization there's a ton of self-help books out there to try and teach you how to be a better leader this one really spoke to my heart and it's the first one that i was usually listening to 1.25 or one and a half i slowed it from one and a half to 1.25 and then i slowed it from 1.25 to one and when i got through it i started it again it's just an incredible book it's brand new i'd recommend everybody pick it up and read it
2: Patrick, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: Well, coming from where I have in high tech and climbing the corporate ladder, succeeding at it, and then diversifying into real estate, failing at it, and then doing it again and winning, but trading all my time away from family, friends, and hobbies and single family, and then finding other ways in commercial real estate and energy funds and other ways to diversify. I got a lot of experience and I relate to a lot of investors and I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody if they would like. I have a lot of time now because all I do is real estate and private equity alternative investments. I'd be happy to chat with anybody that is along their path and they can just go to our website, com slash contact, and you can set a meeting up with me on my calendar and if we're not a good fit, I'll be happy to pass you along to some of my partners that might be.
2: And Patrick, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: We have two websites, investonmainstreet.com, invest on and then main, and then street.com. And then we have passiveinvestingmastery.com, passiveinvestingmastery.com. We have a lot of educational content and current investments out. Like I said, the Recessionary Acquisitions Fund. In addition to writing for Forbes, I do have a book out that did make a bestseller on Amazon. Persistence, pivots, and game changers turning challenges and opportunities. I'd be happy to give this away the signed copy, hard copy, ship for free. I just do it as part of my give back. A lot of people out there that can relate to my journey. There's also Bill Collins, the lead guitar at Def Leppard, NFL, NBA players, coaches, entrepreneurs, athletes, a lot of really cool stories. And the first time I told my whole story. And if anybody's interested, you go to invest on and then main and then slash book. Invest on main and then book. And if you use the promo code best ever, we'll get a sign her copy out to you. And if you'd like to chat, just go ahead and use the link on that page to set up a call too.
2: Awesome. Patrick, thank you for your time today. And thank you for sharing your story of how you started out in real estate, you got hit by the economy, went back educated yourself leveled up as an engineer got back into the game that once kicked your butt and you've succeeded incredibly in real estate so thank you for sharing that story with us appreciate it ash thanks so much for having me best ever listeners thank you for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five-star review share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it